So I'll be talking for a little bit, uh, Paul, and then once I introduce you, then we'll, we'll start okay. the conversation. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking earlier, I know you had Ed on recently. I don't want to duplicate a lot of stuff that he said. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's hitting I am or something. Just steer me someplace else. Got to go. Good afternoon. This is Charlie Pacello with The Council, a radio program, TV program here in KUHS Denver, broadcasting all around the world and uh, just sharing stories of healing and wisdom, enlightenment, understanding, unity, and bringing people together to heal the deepest wounds within our hearts, uh, to heal PTSD, those deep soul traumas that affect us and make, uh, make our lives so miserable sometimes. And so we're here to inspire you. This show has, uh, has, has catapulted and moved beyond anything that I had even anticipated or expected at this time. Uh, our last show, <clears throat> we had over 44,000 people that tuned in. And I just want to thank all of you who tuned into that show. Uh, and, uh, you know, just for it's, it's because of you that this show exists. And, you know, I want to bring you the best people that, to help you to heal from these deepest wounds, to make those connections, to understand those deeper meanings and deeper truths in life, and to, you know, rediscover the beauty that is in you, rediscover who you are. And that life is so worth living. You know, you don't have to stay a prisoner to those pains. You don't have to stay a prisoner to those ancient pains. I mean, there's so much hatred in the world right now. I mean, there's problems going on in the Middle East again. And, there's, and it's just, we have to be taught to hate. A baby doesn't know how, how to hate. A baby doesn't, it, we have to learn how to hate. And if you, and if you hate, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong. There's so much that we have in common with each other. You know, we all, I've, I've, uh, I've had a lot of experiences in my life. I've been with uh, people on the right. I've been with people on the left. And we, we all do the same rituals. We all pray. We all light the candles. We all say prayers. We all do these things. And if we can connect to our common humanity, we can find solutions to the problems we have. And that's the idea behind this show. And we are ser searching for and seeking people who believe in these ideals. The sense that there is only one human family that we've got to be able to look and see our differences and embrace them, not try to use them as your way is the wrong way and my way is the right way. If you have that kind of a mentality, no matter what, you've got a closed mind. And you're not able to look in and embrace the, the totality of what the human experience is about. <clears throat> there was an, uh, a show that's on the National Geographic that I, I highly recommend all of you watching. It's uh, called The Story About Us, and it's with Morgan Freeman. And, you know, he, his last show, he was really trying to see what is that, those common elements that link people together and how hate divides us. And he interviewed this uh, Christian woman who had been a part of this very, <clears throat> excuse me, fundamentalist group in, uh, in Kansas and that hated uh, homosexuals, that hated people who were different than her. And they spouted so much hate. And then she ended up getting in contact with someone who lived in Israel and they were able to find that, you know, this person has human, is, is a human being. They have feelings. They have concerns. They have the same kind of hopes for their families and to live a good life and to live in, in relative peace and harmony with their neighbors. And so that, that was just one person who was able to change and to be transformed by having authentic and real conversations. And so we need to have that. And that's what the show is all about. 
You know, I have uh, uh, Paul Henderson, who I'm going to introduce here in just a few moments, uh, who is a retired Lieutenant Colonel Special Forces. And this day today, this program is about honoring Veterans Day and our veterans who, who have served our country and have provided those freedoms and have, have heard the call, have heard the call of something greater than themselves and have been willing to put their lives on the line to protect those freedoms for us that we take for granted. We so take for granted those freedoms. And so when we, we, we have to be able to you know, recognize our warriors for the, the sacrifices they make because it allows us to have these kinds of conversations. It allows us to have these kinds of discourses with people and to bring on people. Like last week, uh, I had the father who was on. And, and in coming weeks, I'm going to have as guests on the show uh, an IDF vet who was with the Israeli Defense Forces. And she's an amazing woman who's doing all kinds of uh, incredible work around the world to try to bring healing and reconciliation between the Israelis and Palestinians. I'm going to bring in, uh, I haven't asked him yet, but a, a Maori elder and to talk about the Maori warrior tradition and other things and, and, and bringing on you know, people from all different walks of life because this, this show is for you. And so I want to be a, a true council, a council for all people, for all walks of life, for all to represent the best in humanity. And so when, when we look at our warriors and our veterans today, thank them. And live that thanks. Not, not, not even just, just understand it and have that sense of immense gratitude for the things that they have brought forth uh, and have given us in their sacrifices. Now, Veterans Day, um, real quick, a couple uh, quick announcements. Um, I'm going to be doing some workshops starting next month on healing the war within the soul. And we're going to start doing them in Denver. And uh, look up for those locations. It's going to be on my website, which is www.charliepacello.com, charliepacello.com. And also, uh, if you want to talk to me uh, on Twitter, that's uh, at Charlie Pacello. Again, that's at Charlie Pacello. And uh, we're going to be able to do these workshops and replicate them all around the country. And so t stay tuned for that. And, uh, you know, we're going to be able to start healing. You've got to deal with the invisible wounds inside. You've got to be able to look at them, face them, face your shadows, grieve and cry and do all the things that need to be done in order to get to yourself to a place of wholeness. You can only give what you have. You can only, if you have peace inside, you can give peace. If you have war inside, you give war. The outside world is just a reflection of what is going on within us, individually, in our families, and collectively. So it's about taking, doing the steps that we can do, which is to heal those invisible wounds inside of us. So with that said, I want to tell you, give you a little history about Veterans Day. On November 11th, um, in 1918, uh, at the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, uh, there was a, a cessation of hostilities. They stopped fighting. And it was at that moment the war to end all wars uh, ended. And it was a time that was known as the Great War, World War I, and the horrible atrocities, trench warfare, millions and millions of people died. And um, that fighting ceased between the Allied nations and Germany, and eventually the Treaty of Versailles was signed. And President Wilson at the, sign, at the time said these words about Armistice Day. He said, to us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride and the heroism of those who died in the country's service 
and with gratitude for the victory, both because of the things from which it has freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the Council of the Nations. Now, Veterans Day, um, it was supposed to be a day, it was Armistice Day, and it was supposed to be a day of peace. It was supposed to be recognized in 1938 as, as a day, a federal holiday that was dedicated to the cause of world peace and to be hereafter celebrated and known as Armistice Day. So then we had World War II, and then we had the Korean conflict. And so there was an effort made by veterans to change that from Armistice Day to Veterans Day, to honor all veterans who had served in any time, wartime, peacetime, and to just thank them for their service and thank them for the things that they have done for us. Um, in France and uh, Canada, they consider it Remembrance Day. And pretty soon I'm going to ask Paul here to speak about, uh, you know, Remembrance Day. And we're going to read a poem for it called In Flanders Field, and, uh, which was a poem by John McRae. Um, but I just before I bring on Paul, I just want to tell you some facts about veterans. More than 21 million veterans live in the U.S. Two million are women. Veterans represent about 6.5% of the total U.S. population. Of the 21 million, 16.1 million veterans served during at least one war. 5.2 served during peacetime. And in the U.S., veterans have served in 12 major wars. From the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to the Korean War, the World Wars, and our most recent Iraq and Afghanistan. There have been 26 presidents that have been veterans. The Revolutionary War produced four. The Civil War produced seven. And 97 members of the current Congress have served. 81 serve in the House of Representatives and 16 are senators. And during peacetime, our service members have brought humanitarian aid to people who are suffering extreme, you know, disasters and, and finding relief from, from those from home and abroad. So we must express our gratitude for them. Like John F. Kennedy said, as we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter the words, but to live by them. And so I'd like to bring on my guest uh, just a moment here. And this is Paul Henderson. Uh, he's retired Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, he, uh, he and I met when we were in a, uh, I think the first time Paul didn't we meet, we were in uh, um, at Pacifica Graduate Institute, correct? Yep. Yeah, I think that's when we first met, right? And we met, uh, and Paul, we were doing the uh, a healing and tending uh, 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 course to, to tend to military veterans and their wounds. And uh, we ended up immediately having a, a connection, and uh, Paul has been an inspiration as he has uh, been in Vietnam, and he has uh, experienced trauma and had, to re and had recovered from it. But before we get started on that, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, John McRae. If you could let the audience know who John McRae was um, and why his, his poem called In Flanders Field is such a, is such a, a, a famous poem. Would you like me to discuss that? Yes, I would love for you to discuss that. Uh, yeah, John McRae was a Canadian officer and uh, who uh, fought in the Boer War, and he was trained as an artilleryman. And, uh, and he, 
you know, he just loved the army, he loved the people that he threw with, he felt real call to the duty that he did. And after he returned from the Boer War, he became a, a, a doctor, a medical doctor. And when Canada went then into World War One, uh, which was long before the United States did, um, John McRae volunteered, wanted to go, and he did. He deployed to Europe with Canadian troops. He wanted to go back to being an artillery officer, but they had such a shortage of, of uh, positions at that time that they said, no, you got to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So he did. And then he, um, he stayed with the, uh, in the war. And then the Battle of Ypres, uh, which was a horrible, uh, I mean, the devastation of World War I was unimaginable. And a young, um, young officer who was a good friend of his was killed in that battle. And they brought him back to the station where, uh, the medical station where John McRae was at that time. He was a lieutenant colonel at that time. And um, so John McRae uh, took care of the body, prepared it for burial, and then sitting out, on, he was just devastated by this, and sitting out on the back of his aid wagon, he looked out uh, over these fields, which of course were in Flanders, where they were, where he pray was, and he wrote down this poem, uh, which became in Flanders Fields. Uh, and just as a tribute to the, you know, an honoring of the of the people who had fought and the people who had died, and a tribute to his young friend, and of course it it took off at that point and and touched many many people as and as, as it still does mm-hmm. and made the which was you were looking at all these poppies waving in this field, and, oh made the poppy the symbol of uh, veterans and honoring veterans and trying to help veterans. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a it's an incredible poem, and <clears throat> I'm going to read it to you here because when you're when we're remembering veterans, not only do we have to remember the ones who are alive today, um, but we also remember the ones who ha- have uh, who have died in the service uh, for freedom. And so, uh, in Flanders Fields, in Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row. That marks our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Such an amazing poem. And it stands for people, you know, we, 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 we pass by. You know, one of the things I, when I was in L.A., you would drive down the, the highway, Paul, and you'd be on the 405, and you'd be di- driving up, and you'd see all the, you know, there's a, a, a national cemetery that's right there, uh, just past Wilshire Boulevard, onto your right. And people pass that all the time, driving, driving, driving. And you don't realize that those people who are buried there really sacrificed to get, provide us so that we can 
you know, argue with each other. We can pray the way we want to pray. We can, uh, you know, burn the flag. We can do the things that we do that free people can do. And it's because of those people's sacrifices that we're able to do it. So, Paul, I would love for you to share um, your story to the audience. Um, I think it's an incredible story. You were um, a special forces in, uh, in Vietnam. And uh, just tell us, uh, the, the audience here, about, you know, your views on uh, when you were a young man before you joined and, uh, and how you uh, were called to service and, and the challenges that you had to face. I was not special in Vietnam, special forces after I came back from Vietnam. But I'm in Vietnam, I served in the 101st Air Force. Very proud. I was 20 years in the Army, and most of my career was in special forces. I went in the Army in 1968, when the war in Vietnam was, uh, was, was going hot and heavy during that time. It was probably the most intense year of the war. Um, and I, I didn't have a lot of tradition in my family of military and that. I really didn't know what to expect. There was a draft going on, and um, I had a break in my education, so I was eligible for the draft. I, uh, so I, I just finally just hands up in the air and said, well, this is inevitable. I'm going to have to go. So I went down and volunteered for the draft because that way I could pick when I went in. Um, so I went in the Army, and... Uh, you know, I always say my, my experience with the Army was somewhat like my experience with whiskey. Uh, <laughs> I did my first taste, and uh, but, you know, after a while, it started to grow on me, and, and uh, eventually I got to the point where I couldn't imagine life without it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another story. But uh, so I went in the Army, and I discovered I was in this huge organization, and um, it was very empowering for me. It was a real um, movement adulthood and I think you find this a lot with young people who go into the military I mean my mm-hmm. myself and when I was 19 years old just barely 19 years old the most responsible job I'd had up to that point was I sold shoes um, and so all of a sudden you're in this giant organization and you do have responsibilities I was sent to an NCO school and, uh, they had a shortage of, of uh, non-commissioned officers in the combat arms. So I went back, they promoted me to a sergeant after about four months, and then... Um, so you go from selling shoes to going to where you're going to lead people in, in combat. Um, it's a big step for a person, and it's, it's as I said, it's very empowering. It's mm-hmm. a real coming-of-age experience. Um, so I went to Vietnam, I... I uh, served with the 101st Airborne. I was a uh, recon on a forward observer team. I was trained originally as an artilleryman, but uh, they would send artillery people out with infantry to uh, uh, call in artillery fire when they needed the fire. So I, I was out with the infantry uh, for a while. Then I eventually was uh, rotated into an artillery battery with the 101st Airborne. We operated out in the mountains, out west of Way, uh, close to the Laotian mm-hmm. area, in and around uh, the Aishaw Valley, which is a very active place for the North Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we protected the coastal cities. You know, that long since uh, Tet of '68, when Way, for example, 
overrun and held for several weeks by the North Vietnamese Army. So we protected those cities of Wei and Phu Bang. And, uh, and then we also entered into the Aishaw Valley itself along what was the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm-hmm. So we were going there and just uh, their operations. I was there for 10 months. Uh, most of the time I was out in the field, I had one, one stretch where I didn't get out of the field for five months. Uh, we were, so I, uh, I did that, and I, uh, uh, after 10 months, I was hurt badly in, a, uh, in an artillery accident. Somebody dropped an artillery shell, ignited a bunch of propellant, and I got hurt pretty bad in the, as a result. And uh, so I was sent home. Uh, that was after 10 months. And it was, it was a, um, a really difficult experience for me. Of course, I wanted to go full-time there. I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to the world. Uh, and when I got home, and I quite suddenly, only a couple of weeks from living in the jungle to where I was back in my hometown. And it did not work for me. Mm-hmm. I got back there, and I didn't fit in. I didn't belong with the same people I knew. I was in the same places that I was familiar with, but it didn't click. And I felt very alienated and it was horribly frustrating. I really wanted to be back home, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took off and I moved to Idaho. Um, turns out there were a lot of us veterans who moved to Idaho. <laughs> And we just kind of hung out in the mountains there. And it was kind of crazy. We skied a lot. We drank a lot. Um, I got in a lot of fights. I couldn't maintain relationships. Um, it was just pretty wild. We trying to find something we could connect with when the world was not working. Um, and after a bit, after about three years, I came back, finished school, and it was at that point where I, I felt drawn back into the military. Uh, it, it was, you know, when I was so alienated from home, felt like home was the military. That had made such an impression on me and, uh, um, during the time that I served mm-hmm. and the connections that I had made with the people that I was with. And uh, it was a level, but that's what felt like home to me. And so I went back into the military. I went back on active duty and uh, went back through and volunteered and went through the Special Forces course. Uh, then came back out, went into reserve units. And I, I stayed in reserve units. Um, I had one other break, I think, but uh, until 1996. I was eventually, I was commissioned as an officer in uh, 1978. And... Uh, held those kinds of posts. I did 12 years in Special Force. And things were working okay for me. Uh, I also went to law school, I finished law school, and I was I sort of had a dual-track career. Mm-hmm. I, was being a, I was being an Army officer. And, uh, those uh, I found that I still had... I didn't have the acute PTSD symptom, although... Um, you didn't want to surprise me in walking in behind me in a room. Uh, I had terrible, uh, very flat emotions. I just didn't experience emotions except anger. Mm-hmm. That was the only I could easily access. But I 
it, it, and I, I didn't know why. I didn't know why. I came home in 1970. The term post-traumatic didn't even come into existence for another 10 years. So we had a lot of Vietnam veterans who were running around during the time with problems similar to what I was having and nothing that would even identify it, you know, what it was about. We all felt pretty isolated that way. Um, but I, and I, I just, my coping mechanism became alcohol and I just drank every day and I drank quite a bit. I still mm -hmm. functioned. I was a very high functioning alcoholic, mm -hmm. but that's what it was. And this sort of worked until about the mid 1990s, the early mid 1990s. And then things started coming, coming unraveled for me. Um, nightmares started coming back flashback episodes um, would, would come back and I, I never really had that big of a problem with flashbacks but all of a sudden I did and it was an experience of you're back there, you're experiencing these things and they're terrifying mm -hmm. and you're in the middle of it I pushed everybody away I didn't know what to do I was starting to have panic attacks um, and I I had uh, my only mechanism was alcohol, so that's what I used. And the more I drank, the worse the symptoms got. And the worse the symptoms got, the more I drank. And people, you know, by then, by the 90s, people were talking about post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. and they presented it to me, and I totally rejected it. And I find that that's uh, with a lot of veterans, particularly combat veterans, and particularly people who spent a long time in the military, because identity as a warrior in the military and this is what we do so come and tell me i've got a psychological problem <laughs> right well i think that's i think that's paul yeah i agree i think that is so common with military and veterans is that it's you're not you don't have a problem i'm okay i'm fine i'm going to deal with this and yet you end up taking it out on your families you end up taking it out on the people that are closest to you because you're not recognizing that this is not a pathological issue this is actually a normal reaction to abnormal situations and it's just really trying to change and shift the conversation on that so that we can help people to understand that you're actually experiencing something that's normal. But a lot of veterans, we have we struggle with it. I know I certainly did, too. So I was just adding to the conversation here. So go ahead, Paul. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. No, and you're absolutely right. It's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. But the culture in the military and the culture in America, the, you know, the man culture in America doesn't support that. We're supposed to go out, waste the enemy, and then it's Miller time. <laughs> and if you have a logical problem about that, there's something wrong with you, which is exactly what post-traumatic stress disorder said. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with you, um, which is not, it's really not true. Um, so as this progressed, I got to the point where I was, that I was like circling the drain, drink, drink, drink a lot, and uh, in anybody, you know, lost my family, job was threatened, uh, and finally one night, I, everything just kind of blew up around. I got into an altercation with people. Uh, I pulled a gun out. I didn't shoot anybody, thank God, but um, uh, I was in a lot of trouble mm -hmm. as a result. And in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I got dragged out of the life that I was living and 
put into an alcohol treatment program, uh, which got me off of alcohol. Uh, it's been almost 21 years now since that happened. Uh, and, um, and during that process, I started to come to grips with uh, the prompting of a lot of people that I had some issues with the war that needed to get resolved. Mm-hmm. That got me working with, uh, initially with the VA, and eventually got me working with uh, Dr. Tick through the Soldier's Heart Program, mm-hmm. uh, which changed the paradigm completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and things have, you know, it's been, like I say, about tw- years since that process started mm-hmm. and it's been a real miracle I mean I was like a lot of veterans I was really close to taking my own life I'd come close several times uh, mm-hmm. and if I hadn't gotten into that kind of recovery both from alcohol and dealing with the war trauma mm-hmm. uh, I, I think I'd be about 21 years dead right now <laughs> well uh, Paul you and I have the same uh, you know we, we, we've come from the depths of the same hell, you know, five and a half years ago, six years ago, I was in the same place. I was suicidal. Uh, I was ready to end it all because the pain was just too difficult and uh, just too much to carry. And uh, so many mistakes made along the way, so many errors and, and, the, and the memories and the horrors that you've, uh, you've been a part of or you've um, just, it just doesn't seem like you can make it out of it. Like uh, you can't reclaim your life. And it's, uh, you know, it takes people who have the courage, like, you know, to be able to face those demons. We have to face those. We have to, I had to look at my own alcoholism. I had to look at my own drug addiction to be able to say, what was going on with me? What was this symptom here of my soul that was saying that needed to be looked at? Because it was crying out for attention. It was crying out to be, um, you know, find some pathway. And when we, we pathologize somebody, we turn them into victims. <clears throat> there's, like you said, there's something wrong with you. There's something that, uh, you know, you, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life, and you're just going to have to deal with it. And, and you alienate and isolate the people away from society. You don't want to, you know, you don't, you're walking on eggshells around them, and you just make them feel like they're, they're, they're a problem. And what's actually happening is, is that we're not allowing them to process and integrate those experiences in healthy ways to be able to make them to make that transition from the combat veteran to an elder warrior, from a, from a person who's experienced war trauma to someone who has something of wisdom and, and good judgment and uh, who understands uh, life on such a, on, on such a level that, it, they, that wisdom that you carry from those experiences helps to better society. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about your article, and um, um, Paul wrote an amazing article for the, was it the, um, the U.S. Army uh, Special Forces uh, yes. magazine? Yeah, quarterly journal of the, uh, of the U.S. Army Special Forces Association. Wow, it's a fantastic article, and I'd love to be able to talk a little bit more about that, just because, I mean, you point out some of the things in here that in, in the last, uh, 4,500 years of um, our history, our human history, over like 14,000 documented wars that yeah. we have fought. Yeah, and the, uh, the, a little bit of history on this. You know, in the, in the 70s, when, when the United States started dealing with the fact that they had a lot of Vietnam veterans who were having a lot of problems and they couldn't just deny them or make them some individual mm-hmm. problem, 
they they said we got to do something, and so the government uh, turned it essentially over through the VA. They turned it over to the medical profession, and the medical profession approached psychic war trauma the way they would approach a disease. They identified it. They gave it a uh, clinical name: post-traumatic stress disorder. They called it an anxiety disorder, which means there's something with you. Uh, they came up with a, uh, a list of criteria to identify whether or not somebody had it. Things like um, nightmares, exaggerated response, poor relationships, uh, flat emotions, uh, substance abuse, those sorts of things. And then they uh, classified people as to how severe this was with so, and they did that by saying how much of a percentage less than the normal human being you were. Mm-hmm. So you 30% disabled, 50%, 70, 100% disabled, less than. And then came up with a method of, well, how do we treat this? Uh, and what they finally lit on is the only thing that they, they would come up with was drug therapy. And that what uh, the establishment approach to treatment of post-traumatic stress today mm-hmm. is we put people on drugs, and their their uh, their goal is to get the veteran to what they call normative behavior, mm-hmm. and that means function as though the experience never happened. And this denies one of the basic truths of military service. Mm-hmm. It's transformational. You don't. You don't yes. walk out of the military the same person as you were when you went in. No, you don't. And you don't walk out. You're permanently changed. You are absolutely right. You're permanently changed from those experiences. And what is such a tragic thing is that they've, they've, they've reduced it to chemistry. They've reduced our, our, our experiences that we've had. And they think that if we can just uh, change the chemistry around, then we'll be able to solve it. When that doesn't solve it because this is a wounding to the heart. And it doesn't allow for those integrations that are necessary into becoming better and wholer people. And you can't just try to use those normative behaviors as a means to, because uh, uh, you're not, you, you, how can you not be changed by those experiences? You're supposed to be changed by those experiences. And then you're supposed to be led by elder warriors to show you how to be able to come that. By the way, you're listening to KUHS Denver, KUHS Denver. We are broadcasting live all around the world. We have people that are listening and tuning in from Asia, Africa, Europe. It's amazing. I'm so grateful for you being here. We uh, touch uh, lives through music and kind of shows like this. So please support us uh, and uh, continue to listen to KUHS Denver. Um, so, when, you know, when you look at uh, when, what was the difference between the model that uh, Soldier's Heart does uh, in your uh, addressing of the, of the psychic and soul traumas that you had versus this normative, uh, you know, reductionism that the, the medical and, and, and industry and pharmaceutical industry is, is promoting as the only way to heal this. What was the difference and how did that process help you? Well, um, when I went through the VA and I, I got the standard thing, and what they told, the message was you have a, uh, a permanent disorder as a result of your experience and what you can do, you're going to be stuck with this for the rest of your life, but what you can do is learn methods in order to control the, the symptoms and um, the behaviors so that you can within diet. 
And I bought into that, and you know, to a certain extent, it works. They can teach you breathing exercises and how to recognize feelings in your body that you and go through a thought process to control that. But it's it's it about you you know you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. The psychic war trauma is a wound to the heart. It's a wound to the soul, and the medical profession wants to treat it as a wound to the brain and treat it with mind-altering drugs. And the, they, the, the paradigm and the, what shows up in our entire American culture is this is what happens with veterans. You're a civilian. You go into the military, become a service member, get out and become a veteran, and then resume your role as a civilian. What Soldier's Heart does, and Dr. he studied the other, you know, and, and as you pointed out, um, 14,000 wars over 4,500 years over this problem. Uh, and we, throughout literature, even in the Bible, there's references to people who have war trauma, psychic war trauma. Uh, and so other cultures approach this on a different way. And what they did is treat it as part of an initiation process. Mm-hmm. The veteran who goes out and becomes part of the military, and some of those who actually engage in that, uh, it's recognized that they gain certain uh, skills and judgment and insights, and that's that most people don't have the opportunity to to get. And so, when they the, what they do then is incorporate them back into the society, and that's what we do in Soldiers Heart workshops. We bring the veteran back and go through a process of having them deal with the psychic wounds and reintegrate themselves as part of that society, Mm -hmm. where they then resume as an elder warrior, because that's what traditionally we have done with with veterans. So instead of stigmatizing them, pathologizing their experience, we say, this is an experience that is valuable, and it's valuable to us as a society. We need you to be an elder warrior within our society and benefit the, the experience and the judgment that you gain from that experience. So that's the entirely different approach. Um, and, and there's examples of it throughout various cultures. Mm-hmm. And it recognized this, put it into a workable program, and put it through his uh, uh his program was Soldier's Heart, and it's it's remarkably successful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I use myself as an example. I went through that. I went through that process. I learned what is that, and I, you know, I I'm not suffering from PTSD symptoms anymore. And I did for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And it's the redefining of the experience. So that paradigm then becomes: you're a civilian. You're a service member, you are a veteran, and then you are an elder warrior. Mm-hmm. And it is so important to be able to <clears throat> you know, take on that mantle. I mean, if we look at it, you got to look at it in the context of a hero's journey. Joseph Campbell wrote about the hero's journey uh, in his book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he was able to map all of these different stories, these societal mythical stories that cultures have been passing down for uh, since, he, uh, since mankind stepped onto the planet. 
uh, of these stories of the journeys of the soul and being, you're going to hear the call to adventure. Every military person has heard the call to adventure, to serve a higher cause, a cause greater than themselves and willing to sacrifice themselves for that cause. And then they journey down into the underworld. They have these trials, these obstacles, these challenges that they must confront, con excuse me, confront. And they ultimately come to the supreme ordeal, which is the biggest challenge that they have to face. And then there's this dismemberment part. It's a psychological, it's a psycho-spiritual dismemberment where you lose your old self and a new self has to be reborn from that experience. And then you make the return journey home and you have helpers and healers and elders along the way. And the goal is to make that return journey home and come back and being able to share your stories, like Paul has been so gracious to share his story with us today, in meaningful ways to help others to recover and find the path for themselves. Because ultimately, only you can make that journey. You have to, we can only guide you to those places. You end up having to, you still have to cross that bridge and to get to, or to the other side. But we have to have people who understand the process, the tending of the healing like these ancient cultures did. Judeo-Christians had the same things. The uh, American Indians had the same kind of uh, processes that they used to be able to help their warriors come back. Um, so many different Asian cultures had the same thing. So many different peoples understood that this process was necessary, that it was uh, you, were, you were responding uh, to normally in abnormal situations, and that to become elder warriors, you have to be able to take that journey back and be welcomed back into your community, welcomed back into your society, welcomed back by your families and share your story so that we become wiser. We, be, we have better judgment. We understand when to use force and when not to use force. And I mean, you share some wonderful examples in your articles of people who made that transition. I was wondering if you might be able to share some of the people examples of other warriors who were able to successfully make the transition from being a combat veteran or a, a war veteran to being someone who is able to take that wisdom and bring it to help make society better. Oh, sure, they're, they're numerous. I mean, you take somebody in our own culture, like uh, John Kennedy, who was our last warrior president, yeah. uh, who came back after being uh, his PT bubble rammed and run over by a Japanese destroyer, had to survive in the ocean, uh, and came back, went back into, and, and went into a life of service. Um, uh, it was even politics. Um, the, during World War, or during the American Civil War, one of my favorites is a guy named Joshua Chamberlain, who was a college professor at, at, at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine. He was moved by, by uh, the principles of the Civil War. He joined a, a regiment in Maine as a volunteer. He was made an officer. Uh, and at the Battle of Gettysburg, he, he basically saved the Union. Uh, he had a position up on the round top, which was on the left flank of the Union forces. And the Confederates wanted that bad, real bad. Um, and uh, they made several charges up through there, some horrible, bloody battles if you go there. Uh, the Peach Orchard, uh, and the base of uh, Little Round Top. Chamberlain held off the Confederates until his men ran out of ammunition. And he was the far left. They got past him. They could go straight down this hill onto the main Union force. He ran out of ammunition, 
And he said, well, guys, we got nothing else to do. So they fixed bayonets and charged down the hill into the middle of the Confederates. Uh, more or less a suicide mission. But it was so audacious uh, and so surprised that the Confederates broke ranks and ran mm-hmm. away. Uh, he was so important that Lee, or not Lee, I'm sorry, Grant insisted that he be present at the surrender at Appomattox uh, two years later when mm-hmm. Lee surrendered. He later went back. He, I think he was elected for three terms as the governor of Maine. He went back to being a college professor and the president when he gave that, that whole life of service back in there. Oliver Wendell Holmes was almost killed in the Civil War. Had horrible experiences, nightmares, terrible PTSD symptoms, classic symptoms like that. But he went on and became uh, a lawyer and a jurist and a Supreme Court justice. He was probably the most quoted uh, Supreme Court justice in history. Mm-hmm. And the little people know that actually George Washington, our first president, had nightmares. He had terrible, horrible, traumatic nightmares of the French and Indian War. And he was our first president. He he had it back then. He also had a hot temper. Yeah, he did. (laughs) And was prone to fits of rage, which is not uh, uncommon for veterans. And it goes way back. I mean, the open line of the Iliad is, God is sing of the rage of Achilles. Mm This goes back as long as we've been fighting each other in war, which is forever, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. This has been an issue, and the society needs to learn how to deal with this issue so that it becomes what we call post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. instead of post-traumatic experience. And you are listening to this on KUHS Denver Radio. Radio TV, broadcasting all around the world, the greatest shows, the best talk shows, and the greatest music. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for making this show possible. We, as, a, as the show, the council, we are looking for corporate sponsors. If you believe in this show, please, 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 please. This show is touching lives all around the world. Come on the show. Please con- get in contact with me at my website, www.charliepacello.com www.charliepacello.com. Also, you can uh, contact me via Twitter, at Charlie Pacello. And, uh, you know, if you need to do any kind of healing work uh, and want to follow this path and this resonates with you, get in contact with me, get in contact with Soldier's Heart, get in contact with Paul Henderson, and we'll help to make that journey for you. Veterans have to help veterans. We understand that. We get it. You understand what the what is the sacrifices and what are the, the the challenges that we need to overcome, and we need to help each other to get there. And so we've just got a few more minutes, Paul. And um, I just wanted to ask you a quick couple questions. Thank you so much, first of all, for joining me and uh, being on this show and, and being able to share your story to so many thousands of people. Um, what? With your military ex- experiences, when you look back, what are the things that you're most grateful for, and what would you want to say and impart to the young veterans that are out there today? Well, uh, the military is, uh, um, it truly was transformational for me. I am, I am the person I am today, largely molded around my experiences with the military. And I was in there for a long time, you know. 
23 years uh, total military service. Um, and I, I, I believe what I, I think is important for veterans that are coming out today is that they understand truly the transformational nature of their experience, number one. And number two, they understand that uh, the difficulties they may be having in readjusting and dealing with combat experiences um, are, um, as you said, normal reactions to an abnormal situation. Mm -hmm. And it is part of that that molds them, that gives them the gift of that hero's journey that they can give back to the society. You know, I deal a lot with special operations people because that was my background. And I, um, they are the most reluctant, the most distant to being told they have some kind of a wound for their experiences in war. I mean, these, these are people who volunteer military. They volunteer for training in uh, extremely difficult training. They volunteer to be part of elite forces and then to come back and say, well, you're broken because they don't buy it. But when I sit down with that group of folks and I say, and I explain to them the concept of the elder warrior and gifts that they have because of their experiences that they can give back. And that's now what their mission is mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and just because they've taken off the uniform doesn't mean they don't have a mission. And when I explain that to people, I mean, I can see the light bulbs go off over their heads. It's it's. They understand that. Yeah, that's I, I worked hard. I developed a lot of things. I know a lot of things and I have things I can offer to other people. And so it's working with veterans. I want to get the rest of society to tune into that. And that's another challenge. <laughs> yes, that is another challenge to get the rest of society to understand because, you know, it's uh it's such a small percentage of people who actually serve in the military and who actually are, hear that call to service. And so it can get lost in the, you know, the fast-paced lifestyle, the things that are going on, the, the life challenges that people have in their daily life. And they don't understand the, the sacrifices that uh, people make in order to be able to provide them that, with uh, those kind of freedoms. Um, there's a great uh, – which leads me to a great uh, quote here that uh, Charles M. Province – I don't know if you're familiar with Charles M. Province. He was a veteran of the U.S. Army, and uh, he wrote this about soldiers. He was, he was in World War II. And, uh, you know, and, and this is one, one of the things that I want to do – or say in, in salute to all the veterans out there. For I know and, and Paul knows and others know the sacrifices that you make. And – when I read this poem, I just want you to think and sit down that there's been a lot of people who have bled for this country, who have just – just sit and think about the people who have had to sit in, in that and who sacrificed all this blood so that you could be free. All right? It is the soldier, not the minister, who has given us freedom of religion. It's the soldier, not the reporter, who has given us freedom of the press. It's the soldier, not the poet who has given us freedom of speech. It is the soldier, not the campus organizer, who has given us freedom of protest. It is the soldier, not the lawyer, who has given us the right to a fair trial. It is the soldier, not the politician, who has given us the right to vote. It is a soldier who salutes the flag. It is the who serves beneath the flag. 
and whose coffin is draped by the flag and allows the protester to burn the flag. We must revere and give thanks to our, to our veterans and all who served because all the freedoms that we take for granted is because of them. They have provided for us. Whether you agree with the wars or not, uh, that's the truth. And so, Paul, I want to give you a couple minutes to say anything else that you'd like to say before we close the show. I can't believe it's almost, I can't believe it's over. Um, and just anything you would like to share with the audience um, uh, and to the veterans out there to, today on Veterans Day. That, that's a powerful piece that you just read, Charlie. And I, I'm reminded about that, of just how significant the sacrifices are military and how much it means to the society. And we're disconnected now. I mean, they say the United States is not at war right now. The U.S. Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and the Navy are at war there, but the United States is not because the civilians are so uh, separated from that experience. But I know you were in Greece and you went to Thimbley, um and so did I. And as I stood there and you think, and this happened 25 years ago when 300 Spartans died there and Thespians with them, uh, facing the Persians. And that seems like so long ago, 2,500 years, and what does that mean? You know, their sacrifice inspired the rest of Greece to organize themselves and about a year later defeat the Persian army. And if that had not happened, a whole concept of democracy that was born in Greece and grew from that point would have been wiped out and gone. And so 2,500 years of development, that concept which comes to freedom for people and the right to leaders and the right to, to determine your own destiny, really we can go back and think about the God who stood up to several hundred thousand and fought and died and inspired their brothers and sisters to run and protect themselves. So that's... I mean, that's what happens. We wish that we didn't have war. Mm -hmm. uh, that'd be great. But the reality is we do. And we're going to continue to do so. And uh, so we owe a lot, I think, to our veterans. And I, I think it's worthwhile to honor them. And I think it's also worthwhile to promote the connection between them and the rest of the society. Because that's drifting further and further apart breaks my heart to see that. I agree, Paul. Paul, we have uh, just a, a couple minutes left. I just want to thank you so much for joining me on this show here uh, on the council and bringing such incredible life experience, uh, your, your story and, and uh, the wisdom and uh, the elder warrior spirit that you carry along with you uh, and being able to share that with the, with the audience that uh, we have here today. So thank you, Paul, so much. It's, I have such immense gratitude for, uh, for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I want to just close off with, uh, you know, a salute to all the veterans out there. Thank you for making this uh, country what it is. I'll, I do believe one day we will have a place where there is no war, that where there's a time where a, baby, a child will wake up and ask a mom, what was war? And it is because of the veteran that provides us that time. So all these great minds and people who are working to heal this world have an opportunity to raise the consciousness level of this society and to end the society of the world. And we're going to continue to do that on this show. 
Thank you all of you for being with me. Um, I really, truly, truly uh, feel blessed and honored to be with you. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless and uh, have a wonderful weekend, folks. And you're listening to this on KUHSDenver.com, broadcasting live all around the world. Thank you, folks. Council is adjourned.